Today I want you just to imagine what it would have been like for the Apostle Paul to personally speak words of instruction and guidance to a young pastor who was struggling. That's the purpose for which he wrote this letter. And therefore I want you to hear the words of 1 Timothy like they were intended from the heart of an apostle to the heart of a young pastor. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love, that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding the things that they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law was not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and anything else that is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example of those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. This is the word of the Lord. Father in heaven, we thank you for this great, great book. I thank you for this amazing first chapter that is so loaded with wonderful truths and such deep pastoral concern. Thank you that you will use this pastoral letter to remind us as to what we are to be as the church of Jesus Christ here at College Park, and that you will use the uh, 
time that we spend in your word to reform us, to change us, to shape us into everything you want us to be. So use today as the starting point of that. We open our hearts right now and receive your word with gladness, with the gravity that it deserves. And we pray that we'll leave today more in love with you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There are some words or concepts in the Bible that at first blush, when you see them, seem rather simple, elementary, if you will. And then the more that you get into them, the more that you understand them, you realize that there are nuances, there are shades, there's depth, there's complications. And this morning I want to have you think with me about one particular word that has that level of depth and nuance. It's a word that you're familiar with, but you may not fully understand the depth of its meaning. And it's the word church. You're all familiar with that word, but you may not know the depth of all of what it means. In fact, if I were to ask you to close your eyes and think of an image when I say the word church, you, you probably have something from your past, the church that you grew up in, um, maybe it looks like this, maybe not. In fact, recently I asked our staff to tell me about the church that they grew up in. I said, describe it. Walk me through it. Bring me into the sanctuary. Tell me what it felt like. What did it smell like? And so here are some of the words that they used when describing their church. They, they said, small, red carpet, hmm. musty. One person said, dysfunctional. Another said personal. Another said active. Another said ingrown. Another, another said helpful. So you can see in the variety of words that are expressed that, that each individual person reflects a church background and experience that's rather unique. So what about you? In the church that you experienced prior to this time, was it a helpful place or not a helpful place? Was it a place that reflected the beauty of the body of Christ coming together or did it reflect something that was less than desirable. Some of you have come here to College Park to try and get over a former church experience. This is a healing place for you. In fact, if I was to tell you about a church lady, some of you think of a Saturday Night Live character, right? (laughs) Others of you think of this old woman who met you at the front door who gave you these pink peppermints and patted you on the head as you came into church. You see, what you think about the church and how you feel about her is in large part conditioned on your previous experience. But there's even more. There's some really important questions that we need to ask about the church. For instance, questions like these. Is the church absolutely necessary? Could you miss church for three weeks, four weeks, five weeks, seven, ten, a year? Is it entirely necessary? Or when does a group of people actually become a church? So if you have Two people, three people, four people. When, when does God look at them and go, they just became a church? Or here's another one. Is there salvation apart from the church? That's a very challenging question. I mean, can you really genuinely be converted and never be a part of a local church? Can you, can you grow and become everything that God wants you to be? Or does that person really not understand the gospel? And, and then finally, can someone really grow spiritually apart from a local church? Now, I, I ask these questions, and I'm not, I'm not going to answer all of them in our study in First Timothy. I could answer them, so I'm not just asking questions for questions' sake. But they represent a very important dynamic, and that is 
that thinking about the church is really, really important. In fact, thinking about the church is probably more important than even what you really realize. So today, we begin a six-week study in 1 Timothy, our our next expositional verse-by-verse book study. And it is written by the Apostle Paul to a young pastor, Timothy, for the purpose of helping him know how to conduct himself in the house of God. And so for the next six weeks, we're going to look at chapter 1, and then January through May of next year, we'll look at chapters 2 through 6. And we're going to learn many things about the church. And I hope that what you'll see is this one overarching point... And that is that the church, I'm going to argue, is vital to God's mission, the gospel message, and your spiritual maturity. I think that the church is far more important than what we realize. In fact, I think it's at the nexus of God's mission, of the message of the gospel, and your spiritual maturity. For some time I've wanted to do a series on this book and you might wonder, why would you choose Timothy? So I want to let you inside my brain to kind of know what went into my thinking for this book. First, is that after looking at the centrality of Jesus in Colossians and then the suffering of the application of that centrality in Job and then the life of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew, I thought it would be really good to take all of that and then figure out, so how do we live this out in the context of the local church? So from the centrality of Christ to the suffering that he calls us to, to the life of Jesus, now to the church. Secondly, since we've just moved into the new facility, it seems like a really good time to think about what it means to be a church because there are many things that have changed and will continue to change at College Park Church, and there's some things that absolutely cannot change. And so this book will help us to know what those things are. And finally, the doctrine of the church called ecclesiology is often a neglected area of theology, and yet it's the one area that you engage in almost once a week. You come here to church, you experience, you're doing theology as you sit and listen, as you interact, as you sing, as you get involved. And so this is a very practical area of doctrine. And yet it's possible in the midst of all of our practice of it that we may think that we're orthodox when in fact we are not. And I would say that we neglect ecclesiology to our own spiritual peril because on earth this is what we have to accomplish God's mission to preserve his message and to help one another grow spiritually into maturity. So the book of 1 Timothy is a great practical book and it has a number of pastoral items or concerns within it that is as broad of range of subjects as a breadth of people are in any church. It addresses various issues throughout the church and deals with them in a very pastoral and personal way. Let me give you some examples of the kind of issues that we're going to talk about in the next year. True doctrine false teaching, the priority of prayer, gender roles in the church, the relationship between the church and state, church leadership, eligibility of the pastorate, conduct of young pastors, social responsibilities, uh, mercy, money, holiness, world evangelism. Those are just a few of the subjects that are in this great book. So this is going to be an exciting and also varied study. 
Now, 1 Timothy is the part, a part of a broader genre of literature in the New Testament called pastoral epistles. It's a subset of letters that have been written, and these have a particular purpose that is unique from other epistles that um, have been written. Like the, the book of Romans was written primarily to deliver truth to a particular group of people in Rome for Paul to unpack uh, the ex- essence of what the doctrine of salvation is all about and how it should be lived. But the pastoral epistles are different. They include 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. There's three of them. And it's helpful to understand not only something about them as a whole, but also something specifically about them to, to know how to approach 1 Timothy because it is set in this broader genre context. So the pastoral epistles were written to very specific people. They have an intended audience, which was one particular person, Timothy with First and Second Timothy, Titus with that particular book. And yet they were also intended to be read in the broader context of other churches. The letters are personal, they're pastoral, they're doctrinal, and they're intensely practical. And so as a result, you get into some very specific things that Paul addresses in these letters. All three of them seem to have come from a particular time in the Apostle Paul's life. He wrote them, we think, right after the third missionary journey, right about the time when the book of Acts drops off. Paul, after taking three missionary journeys, is then later arrested, released, and then rearrested in Rome. And if church history tells us correctly, he was martyred there. So between the third missionary journey and his final arrest in Rome, Paul wrote three pastoral epistles. He likely wrote 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, or 1 Timothy and Titus, rather, together, specifically addressing how the churches were to be managed and dealt with in a kind of new environment, in Titus's case, and in an established environment, in Timothy's case. And then 2 Timothy was written just at the tail end of Paul's life. He anticipated that he was not only going to be tried, but he anticipated that he was also going to be killed. And so 2 Timothy is a very personal personal letter from the heart of a man who knows that he's about to die. Now, 1 Timothy and Titus were um, written particularly to address the needs in a particular location. For example, um, Timothy was written to help him address the issues in the church at Ephesus, a thriving metropolitan area, a port filled with wealth and commerce and intelligentsia. Crete, however, was a different place, and that's where Titus was sent to. While Timothy was responsible to shepherd one church, Titus had responsibilities to shepherd numerous churches in this particular island. So so Timothy is sent to a a region of the world that is well-established. He's sent to help an established church reform itself, and, and that was a challenging task. In fact, if you have your Bible, go over to Acts chapter 20 and verse 28. Before Timothy took over the reins of leadership in this church, it had been not only well established, but had been fairly well led. There were elders who were there. And Paul, in the book of Acts, well before writing 1 Timothy, addresses the elders of this church. And I want you to listen to what he tells them and how really well developed they must have been as an elder group to receive this instruction. Verse 28 of Acts 20 says this, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. So, Timothy 
takes the charge of leading this church and this group of elders. That was fairly well established. Titus, on the other hand, was sent to the island of Crete, which was known for really being kind of a raucous place. It was, it was known as a place that had lots of decadence and sinful things that were happening. In fact, listen to Titus chapter 1 and verse 12. Paul says this, One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. <laughs> That's what he says. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in faith. So, so Crete was known as kind of a decadent place. It'd be nothing dissimilar if we were to say, you know what, we're going to start a church planting effort and we're going to target the city of Los Angeles, or uh, excuse me, Las Vegas. We're going to target the city of Las Vegas. And then if that church planter sent a letter back to us, it would not be uncommon for him to say something like, many people call this city Sin City, and rightly so. So Crete, the island of Crete, was like a Las Vegas of sorts, a, a place where people were known for being sinful. And as a result, Titus was sent to do his labor of ministry there. So all of this highlights the simple fact that Timothy and Titus were called to very similar tasks in very dissimilar contexts. They were called the very similar tasks. They were called the shepherd people to bring the truth, to do the very similar thing. But they were called to do it in very dissimilar ways. It's amazing that the Bible can be brought to bear in every culture in very different environments and yet the fundamental core truths of who christ is remain intact this is one of the reasons why i would love for you sometime in your lifetime but before you die you must go on a vision trip you must and not just like a vision trip to oh brownsburg i'm talking about a a, a vision trip that's like really far away like 10 hours away to to another place in another side of the planet where it's so radically different And, and the reason is this is when you go there you will be amazed that you sit in a service and and people sing in some cases the same songs that you sing the, the the content of what's being sung is is you can't say it with their own with with their words but you can with your own you know the tune you know the melody there's a, a gravitational pull of your heart to theirs as 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 you know the same Lord and the same Savior you have different contexts different environments I I've worshipped in in huts in in pole barns I've been in big facilities I've been all over the world and what I have found that even the context may change but people who love Jesus have a commonality within their heart and the truth of who the Lord is, is transferable in multiple contexts. I want you to go on a vision trip because you'll sit in a service and, oh, trust me, it'll be really long because most places around the world preach a lot longer than here. And I want you to come back really grateful for how short our sermons are. (laughs) Additionally, for you just to see that the Bible really works. And if sometime you ever doubt, man, is this thing really real? Is this, because this thing just an American thing? Then you go to another foreign setting and you will see that the context may change, but the gospel remains the same. And this is what's happening in Titus and Timothy's life. They're, they're in very different contexts, but the fact is, the gospel is what the gospel is. So now, look at verse 1. We're going to begin by answering the question, so who was Timothy? The book begins with a very common introduction. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our Hope. From the outset, we learned that the author of this book is the Apostle Paul. 
who was the famous persecutor-turned-missionary. According to Acts 9, Jesus personally intervened in Paul's life and said, Saul, that was his name prior to Paul, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? If you're not familiar with this story, you must read Acts 9 to understand what really the book of Timothy is all about. Because Paul, more than any other person, understood what it meant to have been transformed from what he was to what he is. As well, Paul, more than any other person, formed the the core realities of what the New Testament is, capturing them in words and language that we love and know. His understanding of the gospel, his understanding of God's supremacy of all things, his understanding of pastoral ministry, Paul shaped the essence of what the New Testament is. His introduction of himself indicates that he has an apostolic authority. God has given him this authority. He's an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God. And we also see in this greeting a summary of the gospel. He says, grace, mercy, and peace. What does this mean? It means that God, through Christ, has treated us more kindly than what we deserve. That's God's grace. He has been merciful in pardoning our sins through Christ for those who receive him. And he has made reconciliation with a holy God possible. He's brought peace. So the essence of Paul's understanding of the gospel was grace, mercy, and peace. And so this now forms not only the essence of his doctrine, but even the beginning of his greeting. Paul was obviously a man captured by the beauty of what the gospel is all about. In verse 2, we learn something fairly important we find that he says that Timothy is my true child in the faith. My true child. The term is meant to convey legitimacy and also authority. In other words, Titus and Timothy were to view themselves as a vital part of Paul's extended ministry, as a part of his apostolic ministry. You see, Paul could have used any word to describe Timothy. He could have described him as... um, my lieutenant, to Timothy, my assistant, to my ministry co-laborer, to my right-hand man. He could have used anything, but he chose my true child in the faith. This is more than just a little statement. This is indicating the depth of relationship between Paul and Timothy, indicating the significance of their affections for one another. And in many respects, Paul was Timothy's spiritual father, and Paul treated Timothy as a spiritual son. For the churches, this would have meant that Timothy carried an implicit authority within his role. In fact, this, this fits Paul and Timothy's relationship so well, this idea of a son and a father, when we learn of um, their relationship beginning in Acts 16. Acts 16 is where we hear the first mention of Timothy in the entire New Testament. It says this, Paul also came to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer. Don't miss this. But his father was a Greek. So he's got a Jewish mother and a Greek father. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and at Iconium. So note here, that Timothy was the son of a religiously mixed marriage. This was scandalous in his day. It seems that his mother and his grandmother were converted during Paul's first missionary journey to Asia Minor. Second Timothy tells us that Paul refers to his 
mother and his grandmother and the extent of their faith. Noticeably absent, however, is any mention of his dad. So when Paul returns for his second missionary journey, so the first one is when we, we hear that, um, that he traveled to Asia Minor, that's likely when his mother and grandmother were converted, he returns a second time, we find that he is impressed with Timothy's godliness, and that's what we just read in Acts 16. Also, he's impressed with his reputation, and as a result, he decides to take him with him. So now Timothy goes and travels with Paul. And this is just a a really important thing to note here, a a model, if you will, of what mentoring and discipleship should really look like in the context of life-on-life ministry in the body of Christ. In other words, to disciple someone, to mentor them, simply means you take them along with you and you go do what you do. You do life-on-life. Think of anyone who's been impactful in your life. It's not only what they have said, but it's been what they've done with you, where you've gone with them, you've watched them live, you've seen how they've interacted, you you hung out with them and watched how they lived. There's a powerful metaphor of a father and son in Timothy and Paul in that you are walking in life together. And this is what Paul does to this young man. He simply takes him along. Now, since Timothy's family was mixed in terms of religious background, Timothy had not been circumcised. The effect of this in Paul's day, because he was also ministering to Jews and conservative Jews, would have been extremely controversial. And therefore, to avoid offense, Paul personally circumcises Timothy in Acts 16 and then takes him with him on this journey and thus begins a long ministry partnership and a deep love relationship between the two of them in fact timothy is mentioned frequently in the new testament and he's given some significant responsibilities when paul needs an emissary to go to thessalonica he chooses timothy to corinth he sends timothy to philippi he sends timothy in addition timothy is noted as collaborating with the apostle paul on no less than six of the epistles in the new testament first and second thessalonians second corinthians colossians philemon philippians Whenever Timothy was sent to these churches, there were usually problems or something that needed to be fixed, and Paul couldn't go personally, so he sent his own son, if you would, in order to try and fix the problems that were going on there. And they were temporary assignments. And it appears that the assignment to the city of Ephesus, this established, intelligent, wealthy church, was a challenge, not an easy place to lead. Complicating all of this as well was likely Timothy's temperament. If you read Titus and then you read First and Second Timothy, you'll notice a very different tone. In Titus, Paul is rather direct, rather straightforward, and rather brief. It seems as though Titus, because of his stature and because of the absence of so many things that Paul says to Timothy, Titus seems to be more strong-willed, more independent, more of a backbone with steel. Timothy, however, his backbone tends to be more like pasta. He's just a little wiggly and waffle oh certainly he can do pastoral ministry but there are many things that paul has to say to timothy to sort of bolster bolster him up and help him along the way which i think is really encouraging because not everybody in the church should have a backbone of steel not everybody in the church has that sort of temperament and for those of you who seem to have a little bit of a more mild or timid or more nuanced sort of personality know that there were people who god used miraculously in the church to say really important and sometimes really hard things but they did so in a way that fit both their personality and their background god can use you even if at sometimes you feel a bit timid a few examples of timothy's timidity 
he opens the letter by telling him to remain at Ephesus. Now, as a pastor, I know it. I think I know what's going on here. I think that Timothy wrote Paul and said, yeah, I'm done. <laughs> he wanted to go flip burgers, do something. He was done. I, I, want, I want to go somewhere else. New assignment, please. And Paul says, as I urged you, remain at Ephesus. The job wasn't done. He frequently as well seems to have to bolster Timothy's confidence. For instance, in Second Timothy 1, he says, God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of love and power and self-control. He also charges Timothy in 1 Timothy 4 to let no one despise his youth. He's to live up to the calling that God has given him. Timothy seems to suffer as well from stomach problems. 1 Timothy 5, Paul advises to use some wine for his stomach's sake. Paul as well instructs the church at Corinth as to how they are to treat him. In fact, he says, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16, that they are to put Timothy at ease and let no one despise him. As well, he talks about Timothy's tears in 2 Timothy 1. He frequently reminds Timothy about the gifts that he has been given, and he bluntly calls Timothy to steadfastness and perseverance. This is not what he does with Titus. Sometimes Paul reminds me a bit of a boxing coach who, in the midst of a really tough round when your boxer is getting beat and bloodied, the bell rings and he comes back for that quick moment where he can give some instruction. Paul reminds me of a boxing coach who says to his boxing disciple, get back in there and hit harder. He tells him, get back in there and hit harder. Get in there, Timothy. I know this is hard. I know this is difficult, but you need to get in the fight. Don't you quit. Don't you give up. Get in there. And you know what? Every once in a while, I think it's important for us to remind each other that this is a fight and you need to be told, get back in there. And this time, hit harder. Not with parenting, right? Not with, not with dealing with your spouse or with, your, with, with people at work. What I mean is that in a spiritual sense, you're leaning in. Get in there. This is a fight and get after it. In fact, when I read 1 Timothy 6, I think it's not hard at all to read this leaning in of a boxing coach. Just just listen to this passage. And if you will, just imagine the song Eye of the Tiger in the back of your mind. Ready? Here we go. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you have made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things in Jesus Christ. Keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. The idea is, Timothy, get back in there. Get in this fight. Don't you quit. Don't you give up. Have some backbone and get in there and do what God has called you to do. This book, friends, is deeply personal. And it ought to be. Because church work is fundamentally personal. I remember sometime years ago in my last ministry that someone said to me, look, don't take this personally. The fact of the matter is, is when you give your life to the church, it is intensely personal. You have given your life. The challenges, the issues, the people, it is intensely personal. Timothy is fighting big battles over important doctrinal issues. People's eternal destinies are on the line. The truth of the gospel is being compromised. And Paul needed his spiritual son to get back in the battle, to keep striving, and not to quit. And some of you may have come today, and there's some area in your life where you have decided, I am just, I'm this far away from being done. You, 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 um, 
you resonate with the psalmist that says, oh, that I had wings like a dove, I could fly away and run to the mountain. That's where you are. And, th- and this book, in contrast, says, go up to the mountain and come back quickly and get back in the fight. This is an important, personal plea. It's got wonderful doctrine, practical truths, but a tone that comes through that is so clear that says, do not quit. And it's no wonder that Paul calls himself Timothy's dad. Because after all, isn't this what good dads do? They love you, they mentor you, they push you, they encourage you, and sometimes they say, I know this is hard, get up and get back in there. Now, what's, a, what's the overall book of First Timothy about? Let me give you a, a 30,000 foot view of an overview of its teaching. If I had to choose one verse that captures the essence of the entire book, if you want to underline one verse in First Timothy or circle it and say this is the theme, it would be First Timothy 1, First Timothy 3 rather, verses 14 to 15. Here's how it sounds. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing to you so that if I delay, you may know how One ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So this book is about the church who has been entrusted with the truth. And as we study this whole book, you will see that this is not theoretical truth. Rather, this is practical, life-transforming truth. So while some parts of the Bible are merely content to give you the truth and then let you figure out how you are to live it out, First Timothy is not like this. This book is intensely concerned about practical, life-transforming godliness. In fact, if I could summarize the entire book, and for that matter, maybe even all of the pastoral epistles, I would put it this way, that the theme of this book is guard the truth that leads to life. Paul's plea with Timothy, and the plea that I'm going to issue to you is this. God has given us his truth. He's given a deposit of his truth at College Park Church, and we are called to guard that truth because not just it's true, and not just because it's right, but because this right, true word leads to life. It is life that's on the line. Heaven and hell is on the line. Forgiveness and damnable acts are on the line. It is the issue of what one does with this truth, not just if you understand it. So guard the truth that leads to life. In chapter 1, we see Paul talk about the importance of doctrine and refuting false teaching. He says, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus. You may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. So there's a a doctrine, there's false teaching, and Timothy is to get after it. Secondly, he talks about worship in chapter 2, or how people are to conduct themselves in a church, which is really vital to a healthy church. How are men supposed to act? How are women supposed to act? What should you do in terms of uh, worship together? What should be the priority of the church? Listen to 1 Timothy 2. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So doctrine, worship. Third, chapter 3 is about godly leadership. This idea of leaders in the church who are qualified and godly. 
1 Timothy 3, again, 14, I write these things to you so that you may know how to behave in the house of God. In other words, the truth in and of itself must be guarded, and it's not guarded by constitutions or programs. It's not guarded by buildings. People guard the truth. People determine how to apply the truth. Because in varied contexts, whether it was Ephesus or Crete or Indianapolis, we got to figure out how to live out the gospel. And no one has given us a manual how to do that. Although the Bible gives us great and important truths, it doesn't explain to us what sort of programs we should have or how we should conduct ourselves or how many service we should, services we should have in the course of a, of a weekend or on a Sunday. Instead, godly leaders in the right positions who have the right hearts and the right morals make right decisions to preserve and protect the truth. So godly leadership is essential for church ministry to be successful. Fourth, the church is to live this out through a global mission. The church is called to do something in practical and specific ways. Paul says this in 1 Timothy 4, To this end we toil and strive because we have set our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially all those who believe. Command and teach these things. So the church is called to a mission, to an activity, to to do the context of ministry in the environment in which they live. And they're to do that there, in their locale, and also around the world. And then finally, chapter 6 is all about personal godliness. And here is the end game for which Paul has written this letter. Personal godliness. Personal godliness is supposed to be the hallmark of every church. So Paul then says this to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6. He says, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness, fight the good fight of faith, take hold of eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In other words, a church is validated by believing the truth of the word of God by virtue of the godliness of its people. Well, let me state this a little more bluntly and a little more clearly. You determine the reputation of this church's belief in the truth by how you conduct yourself. How you live, how you live, determines people's perception of whether or not we really believe the truth here. And godliness is the end game of pastoral ministry. To have you stand before Christ and be really glad you are part of this church while you were on earth. That godliness is the end game. So when you put doctrine and worship and leadership and mission and godliness together, these are the core fundamental characteristics of what makes the church a church. Certainly there's more that should be added to the list, like prayer, church discipline. But but think what would happen to a church if you removed doctrine or worship or leadership or mission or godliness. So what in the world is a church? Well, it's all of those things with a clear sense of God's mission, his message, and spiritual maturity being birthed in the hearts and lives of its people. So finally, let's consider this. Why does the church matter? So what is on the line when we talk about the church? Why why should you even care about the church? What is significant about the church? How does the doctrine of the church, ecclesiology, how does this really work and live out. For the last year, my entire quiet time has been spent living in and memorizing 1 Timothy, spending lots of time in 2 Timothy and Titus. I've lived in these books. So I have a lot to say. (laughs) My heart is full of all that is here for us. 
Paul addresses some very specific things, some things that I look at, and I just can't believe that he says certain things. And yet also some very practical things written as a pastor to a pastor about how he ought to conduct himself. I find myself more in love with the church today than I've ever been. Not just this church, although that's true, but the church, the idea of the church. Why? Why does the church matter? Here's why. First, because of the gospel. The church, friends, must guard the truth that leads to life. And what should we guard? What is the primary thing we have to guard? The primary thing we have to guard is the gospel. The essence of the message that God has entrusted to us that Jesus Christ came to save sinners, among whom I am the foremost. I am the foremost sinner that I know. You know why? Because I know what I've done. I don't have any idea what you've done. I can imagine what you've done, but I know what I've done. I am the foremost of all sinners. And I agree with Paul that I receive mercy so that in me he might display his perfect patience in me as an example to those who were to believe in him. So my kids grow up and they know my dad is not a righteous, perfect man. And it's amazing, God, that you love him. And through God's love for me, I am able to display his perfect patience to them. That's the essence of what it means to live out the gospel. You don't have to be perfect. Everyone knows you're not. Instead, you have to know the beauty of the gospel. Which means that Jesus came and died for sinners like you, like me. God was merciful. He saves us through Christ to those who turn their lives over to Jesus. Paul's life was radically changed. My life has been radically changed. I hope your life has been radically changed. And the church is the one entity in the world that proclaims this life-giving message of the gospel. This story, this gospel, is the message that anyone receives who's come to receive the Lord Jesus as their Savior. So this truth that Jesus came into the world to save sinners is a truth that must be guarded not just because it's right. It is right. But it must be guarded not just because it's right. It must be guarded because it is the only right path to life. If the church fails in this mission of guarding the truth that leads to life, there is no alternative path. So therefore, this idea of the church proclaiming and declaring and protecting the message of the truth, people's lives are on the line. Heaven and hell hangs in the balance. People's eternal destinies are at stake. This is not just a truth among multiple truths. This is the truth and the only truth that must be guarded. Which is why Paul writes with such vigor and why we must take this calling so seriously. God has given the church a sacred deposit. Secondly, What's on the line here is not only the gospel, but also what's on the line here is your godliness. The reason why the church matters is that the gospel was meant to really radically transform you. Such that godliness and personal growth and progressive sanctification, these were not meant to happen alone. A triune God has designed that spiritual growth would be individually secured. You would individually receive Jesus, but then corporately that we would grow together. That's why the Belgic Confession defines a church as a group of people who preach the gospel and minister the Lord's Supper and practice church discipline. Why would a Belgic Confession identify church discipline? Here's why. Because we don't self-regulate very well. We don't see our own sins very clearly. We need other people to help us see our sins. You don't think well on your own. You don't speak well on your own. You need this word to inform your thinking, your parenting, your marriage, 
the way in which you talk. You see, you live, the question is, do you live biblically? And you need the body of Christ to help in that endeavor. Personal godliness validates the gospel message. Hear me. Personal unrighteousness invalidates it. So you think that stuff that you're doing that no one knows about and eventually is going to be found about just impacts you? What are you, crazy? Your actions affect everyone. Your family, your kids, and us. People know you go to this church and yet you still do what you do. Your personal godliness tells the world that we don't declare the truth here because of how you live. You can't do that. That's why Paul said to Timothy, I give you this charge and some have made shipwreck of their faith. And I've delivered them over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. Why such strong words? Because the truth of the gospel is on the line when people treat it as if it is trifleness and somehow something they can pick and choose what they want to do by virtue of their ungodliness and their unrighteousness. The consequences are not just about you. They are about all of us. And that's why a pastoral epistle is so important. The gospel, rightly understood, will lead to a life rightly lived. Third. The issue is the glory of God is at stake. The final reason why the church matters relates to the ultimate aim of everything, that being the glory of God. The reformers used to put it this way, faith alone, by grace alone, through Christ alone, according to the scriptures alone, for the glory of God alone. That's the point. That everything that we do has an end game. The church has an end game. It is the glory of God. In fact, Paul, after talking about the beauty of the gospel, he moves from soteriology, the doctrine of salvation, talking about the church and what we are to be, and then he he has this beautiful statement, this benediction, this doxology that comes out in chapter 1 where he says to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. In other words, the church and the gospel are meant to bring you to God. So what is our aim? Our aim is that Sunday, today, as you leave, you will not be enamored by this church, our programs, what we've said, what we've sung, but you'll walk out going, God, I love you and I love your church. But I love you because I see you in the church. The church exists to guard the truth, to cultivate godliness, to display the glory of God. And therefore, if you love the gospel and if you love the glory of God, then you will love the church. Sure, she isn't perfect. I mean, the church isn't perfect. I mean, you're here, right? <laughs> but it doesn't mean that she isn't beautiful. I've had some great seats at weddings, like right up in the front, and I see a dad walking his daughter down the aisle, and he knows very well that this little girl who's grown up on his arm is not a perfect girl. And sometimes I, I look at the father's eyes, and I think he's walking down the aisle looking at the young man going, you don't know what you're getting into today. So. <laughs> I see it in his eyes. Part relief, partly, dude, you are in for it, right? And at the same time, he's in love with her. She's beautiful. She's lovely, even though she is imperfect. And I would tell you, friends, even though the church of Jesus Christ, and even though this church of Jesus Christ is incredibly imperfect, she is still gloriously beautiful. That's why the Bible calls the church the bride of Christ. Because when doctrine and right living And the proclamation of the gospel converge. Something beautiful takes place. In fact, the church is so sacred that it's no wonder that Paul would write a letter to help a young pastor know how he ought to live in this group of people that are the pillar of truth in the world. Whose end game 
is to live their lives such that at the end of the day they would say to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. That's the church. And you ought to love her because you love the glory of God. Father, we pray that you would increase our affections and love for the church. That you would cause us to see the beauty of what she is. I pray that you'd find in this building today or over the internet or on video a godly people who are motivated to get after it for your glory and the advancement of your kingdom. Oh God, we are an imperfect church. We are filled with imperfect people and we need your help to live out this mission, this message, this maturity. So help us and help those who today need to take some sort of step or action that you have placed on their heart in light of what you are saying from this great book. And we pray this in Jesus' name.